Chapter 58 Rock or Sand So far we have dealt mainly with the mechanics of our Lord's picture of the two men and the two houses. Obviously, with a picture like this, the first thing to do is to look at the picture itself and discover its meaning. Then that can be applied to the spiritual condition under consideration. We have already begun to do this, but we must now proceed with it in detail. What are the characteristics of the merely nominal or pseudo-Christian? We can divide them into general and particular. In general, they are obviously the very things which we observed in the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. That is to say, he is foolish, hasty, and superficial. He does not believe very much in doctrine or in understanding the scriptures. He wants to enjoy Christianity without much trouble. He cannot be bothered with all these doctrines and definitions. He is in a great hurry, and he is always impatient of instruction and experience and guidance. He is indeed generally impatient of all true knowledge. That is his chief characteristic according to our Lord's picture of him. So far we have considered his mentality. And before going on to our next consideration, I want to stress the importance of that. There is nothing which provides such a true index of what a man really is as his general mentality. It is a mistake to ignore this and to concentrate only on his actions in detail. But turning now to the particulars, what are the characteristics of the false professor? The first thing about him is that, like the man in the picture, he is a man who is out to please himself. Analyze all he does and listen to what he says, and you will find that it all revolves around himself. That is really the key to everything he does and everything he says. Self is at the center of his life, and self controls his outlook and all his actions. He desires ease and comfort and certain benefits. That is why he is to be found in the realm of the church. He is anxious to obtain certain blessings. And in this, he differs from the man who is right out in the world and who does not claim to have any beliefs at all. This man has discovered that there are certain blessings offered in Christianity. He is interested in them and wants to know something about them and how to obtain them. He is always thinking in terms of, what can I get? What will it give me? What benefits are likely to accrue to me if I go in for it? That is the kind of motive that animates him. And because this is his attitude, he does not really face the full teaching of the gospel, nor want to know the whole counsel of God. Let us consider this in detail. We saw, in looking at the picture earlier, that the trouble with the man who builds his house hurriedly and without foundations upon the sand is that he does not believe in consulting manuals on architecture and house building, he does not believe in going to an architect, he does not want plans and specifications. Indeed, all such details seem to him an unnecessary fuss, and he has no interest in them. It is exactly the same with the false believer. He does not really trouble to study the Word of God. He is not a true student of the Bible. He may indeed have a certain interest in the grammar or the mechanics of Scripture, but he is not really concerned to know the message of the book. He has never really allowed himself to face its full teaching. Paul was able to return to the elders of the church at Ephesus and to say to them that he was very happy about one thing, that he had delivered unto them all the counsel of God. He did not keep anything back. The message he had been given by the risen Lord he had given to them. There were parts of it that hurt, parts that perhaps he would rather not have given, but it was not his message. It was the whole counsel of God, and he had given it to them as from God. The superficial false believer is not interested in that. 
Secondly, he picks out what he likes and concentrates on what appeals to him. For instance, he likes the doctrine of the love of God, but not the doctrine of the justice of God. He does not like the idea of God as a holy God and a righteous God. The idea of the holiness of God is repellent to him, so he does not read about it. He knows that there are certain great passages in the Bible that manifest the love of God, and he can recite them by heart because he reads them so often. He thinks he knows all about John 3.16, but he does not even read that properly. He emphasizes a portion of it, but he does not like the idea of should not perish. He does not go to the end of that same third chapter where it says, The wrath of God abideth on him. That he does not believe and does not like. He is interested in the love of God and in forgiveness. He is interested, in other words, in everything that gives him the feeling of comfort and happiness and joy and peace within. So whether consciously or unconsciously, he picks and chooses as he reads the Bible. There are many people who do that. There was quite a vogue in that kind of thing in the early part of this century. There were people who never read the epistles of the Apostle Paul. They read only the Gospels. And they did not read the whole of the Gospels because they felt that there were things that were offensive. So they narrowed it down to the Sermon on the Mount. But even here, in the same way, they did not read the Beatitudes. They simply read about loving your enemies, etc. They were pacifists and idealists who did not believe, they said, in striking back, but in turning the other cheek. That is the typical false believer. He extracts and picks out that which pleases him and ignores the rest. You see it so clearly in the picture of the man who built his house upon the sand, and it is exactly the same in the spiritual realm. We should examine ourselves constantly in the light of the Word, and if we are not reading it in such a way as to be examined by it, we are not reading it correctly. We must face these things. Do I take the whole message of the Scriptures? Am I taking the whole counsel of God? Do I accept the teaching concerning the wrath of God as I do that concerning the love of God? Am I as ready to believe in the righteousness of God as in His mercy, in the justice and holiness of God as well as in His compassion and long-suffering? That is the question. The characteristic of the false believer is that he does not face it all. He just picks out what he wants and likes and ignores the rest. In other words, his outstanding characteristic always is that he never faces completely and honestly the nature of sin and the effects of sin in the light of the holiness of God. The trouble with him is that he never wants to feel unhappy. He never wants to feel a sense of dissatisfaction with himself or a sense of discomfort. The thing he wants to avoid at all costs is being unhappy or being made to feel uncomfortable. He does not like the people who make him feel uncomfortable, nor the passages in the Bible that do the same, so he picks and chooses. He is always out for ease and comfort and happiness, and he never faces properly the biblical doctrine of sin, because it disturbs him and causes him disquiet. But in so doing, he is evading a vital part of the great message of the Bible. The Bible, in the first instance, is a terrible exposition and a graphic delineation of the effects of sin. That is why it gives all that history in the Old Testament. Why, for instance, it shows a man like David, one of its greatest heroes, falling into gross sin, committing adultery and murder. Why does it do that? 
It is to impress upon us the effects of sin, to teach us that there is something in all of us that can drag us down to that, that we are all by nature false and foul and vile. The false believer does not like such teaching. He dislikes it so much that he even objects to the distinction which the Bible draws between sin and sins. I knew a man who used to attend a place of worship, who now no longer does so. His main reason for staying away is that he did not like the preacher's constant talk about sin. He did not object to hearing about sins because he was prepared to admit that he was not absolutely perfect. But when the preacher said that man's very nature was vile and foul, he felt that that was going too far. He was not as bad as that. But the Bible talks about the sinful nature and says of us that we are shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me that we are all by nature the children of wrath, that we must say, if we speak truthfully, that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, and that nothing will suffice for us but to be born again and to be given a new nature. The nominal and formal Christian hates that doctrine and avoids it. In other words, the trouble with him ultimately is that he does not really desire to know God. He wants God's blessing, but he does not want God. He does not really desire to serve God and to worship Him with the whole of his being. He simply wants certain things that he believes God can give him. To sum it up, his real trouble is that he does not know the meaning of the expression hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He is not interested in righteousness. He is not interested in holiness. He really does not want to be like Christ. He simply wants to be made comfortable. He is like the man in the picture who wants to build a house hurriedly so that he can sit in his armchair and enjoy himself. He wishes all to be well with him in this life and in the life to come, but he wants it on his own terms and in his own way. He is impatient and dislikes all teaching and instruction that warn him that this is not sufficient if he really wants to have a satisfactory and durable edifice. What, then, are the characteristics of the true Christian? Put positively, it is that he doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Our Lord says, Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man. What does this mean? The first part of the answer is to make clear what it does not mean. That is most important. Obviously, it does not mean justification by works. Our Lord is not saying here that the man who is truly Christian is the man who, having listened to the Sermon on the Mount, puts it into practice and thereby makes himself a Christian. Why is that interpretation impossible? For the good reason that the Beatitudes make it quite impossible. At the very beginning, we emphasize that the Sermon on the Mount must be taken as a whole, and so it must. We start with the Beatitudes, and the first statement is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. We can try from now until we are dead, but we shall never make ourselves poor in spirit, and we can never make ourselves conform to any of the Beatitudes. That is a sheer impossibility, so it cannot mean justification by works. Then take that great climax at the end of the fifth chapter. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That, again, is quite impossible to man in his own strength and proves further that this passage does not teach justification by works. Were it to do so, it would contradict the whole message of the New Testament, which tells us that what we have failed to do, 
God has sent his Son into the world to do for us. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. No man shall be justified by the deeds of the law, but only by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Neither is it a teaching of sinless perfection. Many people read these pictures at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and say that they mean that the only man who is allowed or able to enter into the kingdom of heaven is the man who, having read the Sermon on the Mount, puts each detail into practice always and everywhere. This, again, is obviously impossible. If that were the teaching, then we could be quite certain that there never has been and there never will be a single Christian in the world. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have all failed. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It cannot be sinless perfection, therefore, which is advocated here. What then is it? It is none other than the doctrine which James in his epistle summarizes in the words, Faith without works is dead. It is simply a perfect definition of faith. Faith without works is not faith, it is dead. The life of faith is never a life of ease. Faith is always practical. The difference between faith and intellectual assent is that intellectual assent simply says, Lord, Lord, but does not do his will. In other words, though I may say Lord, Lord to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no meaning in it unless I regard him as my Lord and willingly become his bond slave. My words are idle words and I do not mean Lord, Lord, unless I obey him. Faith without works is dead. Or, to put it another way, true faith always shows itself in the life. It shows itself in the person in general, and it also shows itself in what he does. Mark the double emphasis. Faith shows itself in the person in general, as well as in what he says and does. There must be no contradiction between a man's appearance and general demeanor and what he says and does. The first thing we are told about the Christian in the Sermon on the Mount is that he must be poor in spirit, and if he is poor in spirit, he never looks as if he were proud and self-satisfied. Another thing we are told about him is that he mourns because of his sin and that he is meek. The man who is meek never looks pleased with himself. We are talking of what he looks like before he has said or done anything. True faith always shows itself in a man's general appearance, in the total impression he gives, as well as in what he says and does in particular. You have sometimes seen men saying, Lord, Lord, who almost give the impression that they are patronizing God as they say it. So full of themselves are they, so pleased with themselves, so self-confident. They do not know what Paul meant when he said to the church at Corinth, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He preached the gospel with a sense of awe upon him because it was the message of God, and he was aware of his own unworthiness and the seriousness of the situation. So we must not forget that faith shows itself in a man's general bearing as well as in what he says and does. Faith always shows itself in the whole personality. We can summarize it all in the words we find in the first and second chapters of John's first epistle, where we read, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. We can see where those have gone astray who hold that the Sermon on the Mount cannot apply to us, 
but only to the disciples of our Lord's own day and to the Jews of some future kingdom which is yet to come. They say it must be so, otherwise we are put under the law and not under grace. But the words just quoted from the first epistle of John were written under grace, and John puts it like that specifically. If any man says, I know him, that is your faith, believing in the grace of Christ and the free forgiveness of sin. If any man says, I know him and keepeth not his commandments, he is a liar. That is simply repeating what our Lord says here about those who shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And it is the message of the whole of the New Testament. He gave himself for us, says Paul to Titus, that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. We have been saved unto holiness. He set us apart in order to prepare us for himself. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. That is the doctrine of the Bible. But we must apply all this in a yet more detailed manner. What is implied by putting into operation the Sermon on the Mount? How can I know whether I am a wise man or a foolish man? Again, let me start with a few simple negatives. One of the best tests is this. Do you resent this Sermon on the Mount? Do you dislike it? Do you object to hearing preaching on it? If you do, you are a foolish person. The foolish person always dislikes the Sermon on the Mount, when it is presented as it is, in all its parts. Do you feel it is making things impossible for you? Do you become annoyed at its standard? Do you say it is quite impossible? Do you say it is grim? This preaching is grim. It is making everything hopeless. Is that your reaction to it? It is always the reaction of the false believer. He is impatient with the Sermon on the Mount. He resents being examined. He hates being examined because it makes him feel uncomfortable. The true Christian is entirely different. He does not resent it, as we shall see. He does not resent the condemnation of the Sermon on the Mount, and he never defends himself against it. We can put it like this. We know that we betray ourselves by our idle remarks, and we can often tell a man by his immediate reaction. We are all so subtle and clever that when we take second thoughts and begin to think about a thing, we are a little more guarded and careful in what we say. What really shows what we are is our instinctive answer, our immediate reaction. And if our reaction to the Sermon on the Mount is one of resentment, if we feel it is hard and difficult and makes things impossible, and that it is not the nice sort of Christianity we thought it was, we are not true believers. Another characteristic of the false believer at this point is that, having heard it, he forgets all about it. He is a forgetful hearer who listens to the message and immediately forgets it. He is interested for a moment, then it goes from his mind, perhaps as the result of a conversation in the vestibule on the way out of church. Another feature of the false professors is that while, in general, they may admire the sermon and praise its teaching, they never put it into practice. Or they will approve certain parts of it and ignore others. So many people seem to think that the Sermon on the Mount simply says one thing, such as love your enemies. They do not seem to understand all these other things. But we must take it as a whole, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Beatitudes, the Law, Instruction, everything. It is all one sermon. 
But let us turn to the positive characteristics of the true believer. He is a man who does face this teaching, and he faces the whole of it. He does not pick and choose. He allows every part of the Bible to speak to him. He is not impatient. He takes time to read it. He does not rush to a few favorite psalms and use them as a kind of hypnotic when he cannot sleep at night. He allows the whole word to examine him and to search him. Far from resenting this searching, he welcomes it. He knows it is good for him, so he does not object to the pain. He realizes that no chastening for the present is joyous, but grievous. But he knows that afterward, it invariably yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them that are exercised thereby. In other words, the true Christian humbles himself under the word. He agrees that what it says of him is true. Indeed, he says, it has not said enough about me. He does not resent its criticism, nor that of other people, but rather he says to himself, they do not say the half, they do not know me. He humbles himself under the word and all its criticism. He admits and confesses his utter failure and his complete unworthiness. You see, the man who is right with respect to this sermon is a man who, having humbled himself, submits himself to it, becomes poor in spirit, becomes a mourner for his sins, becomes meek because he knows how worthless he is. He immediately conforms to the Beatitudes because of the effect of the word upon him. And then, because of that, he desires to conform to the type and pattern set before him. Here is a very good test. Would you like to live the Sermon on the Mount? Is that your true desire? Is that your ambition? If it is, it is a very good and healthy sign. Any man who desires to live this type and kind of life is a Christian. He hungers and thirsts after righteousness. That is the big thing in his life. He is not content with what he is. He says, Oh, that I might be like the saints I have read about, like Hudson Taylor or Brainerd or Calvin. If only I were like the men who lived in caves and dens and sacrificed and suffered everything for his sake. If only I were like Paul. Oh, that I were more like my blessed Lord himself. The man who can say that honestly is a man who is building on the rock. He is conforming to the Beatitudes. Observe the nature of the test. It is not asking whether you are sinless or perfect. It is asking what you would like to be, what you desire to be. Then, of course, the true believer is a man who accepts our Lord's teaching concerning the law. You remember how in the fifth chapter our Lord interpreted the ancient law spiritually with regard to certain things. The believer accepts that and believes it is right. He is not content with simply refraining from committing adultery as an act. He does not want to look at a woman to lust after her. He says, that is right. One must be clean in heart and not only in actions. And I want to be clean like that. He accepts fully our Lord's teaching about the law. In the same way, he accepts the teaching about doing our alms in secret. He does not advertise his good deeds, neither does he draw attention to the fact that he does not advertise. His left hand really does not know what his right hand is doing. He also remembers the teaching about prayer and about not setting our affections on the things of the world, about having a single eye. He remembers that we are not even to worry about our daily bread, but are to leave it all to our Father who feeds the sparrows and will certainly not neglect his children. He remembers the instruction about not judging or condemning our brother 
and about taking the beam out of our own eye before dealing with the mote in our brother's eye. He recalls that we are taught to do unto others as we would that they should do unto us. He accepts the whole teaching in its fullness. But not only that, he bemoans his failure to live it out. He wants to. He desires to. He tries to. But he realizes that he fails. But then he believes the next portion of the teaching, and he asks, he seeks, he knocks. He believes the message that tells him that by the Holy Spirit these things are possible. And he remembers that Christ has said in this sermon, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And he goes on until he obtains. That is what is meant by doing these things. It means that a man's supreme desire is to do these things and to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. It means he is a man who not only wants forgiveness, not only wants to escape hell and to go to heaven. Quite as much, in a sense, he wants positive holiness in this life and in this world. He wants to be righteous. He sings from his heart that hymn of Charles Wesley's, Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that always feels thy blood so freely shed for me. That is the man who builds upon the rock. He is a man who desires and prays for holiness and who strives after it. He does his utmost to be holy, because his supreme desire is to know Christ, not only to be forgiven, not only to go to heaven, but to know Christ now, to have Christ as his brother, to have Christ as his companion, to be walking with Christ in the light now, to enjoy a foretaste of heaven here in this world of time. That is the man who builds upon the rock. He is a man who loves God for God's sake, and whose supreme desire and concern is that God's name and God's glory may be magnified and spread abroad. There, then, are the details of this matter. That is what is meant by doing these things. That is what is meant by practicing the Sermon on the Mount. It is to agree with the shorter catechism that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You know that you will never bring yourself to perfection, but your desire, your effort, is to that end, and all the time you are relying upon the Holy Spirit who has been given you to enable you to do so. That is the doctrine, and anyone who can face these tests, the negative and the positive, in that way, can be happy and certain and sure that his house is being built upon the rock. If, on the other hand, you find you cannot answer these tests satisfactorily, there is but one inevitable conclusion. You have been building upon the sand, and your house will collapse. It will do so for certain on the day of judgment. It may well do so before that, when the next war comes, perhaps when the hydrogen bomb is let loose, or when you lose your money, your goods, your possessions. You will see then that you have nothing. If you see that now, admit it. Confess it to God without a second's delay. Confess it and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Acknowledge it and cast yourself upon His love and mercy. Tell Him that, at last, you desire to be holy and righteous. Ask Him to give you His Spirit and to reveal to you the perfect work of Christ on your behalf. Follow Christ, and He will lead you to this true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord.